0: So, Josh Burns, welcome to Young, Dumb and Politically Disengaged. Thank you so much for being on the show.
1: It's my pleasure. I'm I'm very pleased to be with you.
0: Your Labor's Federal MP for McNamara, which was previously the seat of Melbourne Ports, uh, which has been a labor seat literally forever, like 115 years or something like that. You were born and raised in Caulfield. You've worked a number of jobs prior to politics. You're a teacher's aide and a factory hand, and notably, you also served as a senior advisor to the Premier of Victoria, Daniel Andrews, as well. How? Tell me how you got that gig.
1: Well, I was the Labor candidate in Caulfield in the 2014 election, in the state election, and it was at that time an 11% seat, it was a safe Liberal seat, and no one really wanted to put their hands up, and I was a young, you know, young man who really had nothing to lose, and I wanted to, I wanted to give people in Caulfield something to vote for as a a progressive. If you're a progressive in Caulfield, I wanted to know that, that there was a Labor person who was going to take it seriously, and that cared about, not, not necessarily winning, but but putting up a really good campaign and fighting for things locally that that are important and um, and I you know and we and we treated the campaign really seriously. We ended up getting some really good election commitments out of the then Andrews opposition. Uh, one of them being a complete redevelopment of Glenara Secondary College, which was you know so. Uh, you know, so great to be a part of that redevelopment and to have fought for it and to have gotten over the line and to have formed government and to be able to deliver it and to walk through Glenara College was a really, you know, it, it was, it's, it's a, I'm really proud of, of, of being a part of that. And, and it came out of the fact that no one else really wanted to, to do the job. And so there was an opportunity. So, yeah, I think, I think, I think it showed people that I was really serious about politics and I was really, I cared deeply about the Labour Party and, and, and I believed in its ability to, to do really good things. And so I met a lot of people, and one of the per- people I met was a guy called Dan, and um, and his and his team, and and yeah, they they were really really for nice enough to, to offer me a position to come and join them after the election, and uh, and I, I stayed there for four years. We, we we talk about culture a lot in politics at the moment, and the culture of Canberra. Well, the culture in Daniel's office was something that we took really seriously, and it was led by. His chief of staff who is you know she is one of the most impressive and and um, strong and capable leaders I've ever worked for obviously Daniel was in charge of the office but um, but she you know she was she was the chief of staff and and she, culture was something that was a really important part of the office respecting each other working really hard delivering really high quality work um, but also being uh, being one office that, that had a really important goal, and, and that was to create a good government, to work for each other, and to work for the premier. And and yeah, and culture was something we spoke about a lot: how we treated each other, how hard we worked for each other. It was a really, it was a really inspiring office to be a part of. And and yeah, I, I think it was a really good grounding for me to be able to then move into the federal parliament, um, to be able to see what what culture in a political office can be and how, um, how good governments can operate. And I hope that um, I'll be able to serve in a future government and use that experience that I got under work with Daniel to, to be able to recreate this real emphasis on good culture and good work practices within the political office because it doesn't always end up like that.
0: Since being elected in 2019, you've been passionate about Various things. Um, you've been an advocate for support for local businesses, especially now during, you know, going through the pandemic. Um, you've written and advocated for uh, economic recovery agenda through tackling Australia's housing affordability and homelessness crisis and investing in clean energy. And you're also committed to reconciliation with our first Australians as well. You're a member of the House Standing Committee on Environment and Energy, the House Standing Committee on Communications and the Arts, and the Chair of the Labor Party's International and Legal Affairs Caucus Committee. And recently, or, you know, the past, you've only been, you know, a short time there, but you've been very vocal about the homelessness and housing crisis crisis here in Australia, um, and I was reading the report. It's really interesting. It's really long. I need to actually sit down and read through it. It's fascinating. Um, it's a bit dense in parts, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's it's interesting. I didn't. I only just discovered it before. So it's um. But you, in a recent policy piece published by the Mackell Institute, you argue that housing in Australia should be a human right, which you say would be a big shift and would require significant change in attitude by the federal government. And you proposed a shared equity model. So tell us a little bit more about that.
1: Well, let's take a step back. When talking about housing and, and, that, and the situation in housing in Australia, I think that there needs to be a pretty clear goal. And that goal needs to be that Australians should have access to safe and secure housing. That, that's the goal, right? And, and at the moment, that goal is not being achieved. I also think that, that housing and the housing sector has been really good for Australians to be able to make money. If you, if you are able to get into the housing market in Australia, at 65, the net worth of an Australian who is able to, the median net worth of an Australian who's been able to get into the housing sector and get into a mortgage, you know, basically pay off the mortgage throughout their life, the average amount of net worth is almost a million dollars, right? People are acquiring assets. Property has been a great wealth creator for people. On the flip side, if you're not able to get into the housing sector, you're, you're retiring with roughly around $40,000 um, next to your name as a net worth, right? You might have a few more assets, but when you take into consideration the, the amount that, that, that people are able to retire with is, is is you know, on comp- literally the difference between poverty and, and you know, having a million dollars worth of assets next to your name. It's a great wealth creator in Australia. but what what the federal government has done over and, and, and you know, and governments of all different persuasions, what they've done is they have they have um really tilted the federal government's involvement in Australia's housing sector towards people who are owning three, four, five, six, seven homes. And the amount of money that the federal government is spending is really skewing the market. And 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 that has a lot of flow-on effects, right? So that, that affects the price of renters because, you know, high-income earners who can't afford to get into the housing market come into the rental market and then they push the price of rental up. Um, and that pushes the number of people who are low-income earners to be able to afford rental properties, you know, even further down and, and the number of rental properties that are available to people on low incomes or on on job seeker support is completely negligible. So it, it all has an effect and, and and how we treat housing as a as a – um, as a commodity and as an idea in Australia is fundamental. So, so what I argue in this policy piece, and as you say, it is quite long, but I would encourage people to sit down and, um, and to have a read of it, um, is, is to think about housing slightly differently, is to think about housing as something that, yes, I want, I want housing to be used in order for people to make money. I really do, right? I'd rather people own their own home than to rent. I think it's a really important thing. But if we're not creating a situation where we're providing more opportunities for Australians to get into the housing market, then this problem's only going to get worse and worse and worse. And we're seeing it get worse. The number of younger Australians who are able to get into the housing market is is rapidly decreasing. So making housing a human right, what it does, and the idea behind it is to create a sense of liability for the government. So what that means is if you are a citizen of the country, the government needs to be able to provide you with adequate housing, with safe housing. And there is a legal responsibility for the government to do so. Now, when the government has a legal requirement to do something, it's far more binding than if it doesn't, right, for obvious reasons. So, And and there is a number of different models around the world that have have explored this. And I'm not being prescriptive about what type. What I'm emphasising is that Governments need to change the way they're thinking about housing, the way in which they're emphasizing the resources that they're putting into the housing sector. If you're only putting money into incentivizing people buying their fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh homes, and you're not incentivizing enough at the same scale, people who are trying to get into the housing market or people who can't afford to even get into the private rental market, then you're you're just tipping. The, the whole market towards investors, and, that, and that's what we're seeing. We're seeing house prices skyrocket at the moment and less and less people being able to afford them. People are making money on housing, but it's a smaller and smaller number of Australians. So my my, my writing and my focus on the housing sector is about changing that paradigm, changing the way in which government is viewing the housing sector, because if we don't do something, Leslie, it, it's going to keep getting worse, and Australians and, and future generation of Australians are going to be locked out, of being able to acquire assets, being able to get into the housing market, and ultimately being able to live in safe and secure housing, which I think is not uh, in, in anyone's interest um, and Australia's interests as an in economy more broadly. St Kilda has, outside the Melbourne CBD, the highest concentration of homeless people in, in Melbourne, and uh, and some of that's got to do with some of the services that are around our, our local community. So we do have some wonderful local services, things like drop-in food services. Uh, we have um, Respite services. We have mental health services. We have housing services. We also have medical um, services. People can go and see a doctor, um, for example. So, so there are there is the concentration of, of of very good services that that help people who are facing housing difficulties. Um, but, but I, I think the point that I'm 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 want to emphasise and, and put out in the public debate is that is that it used to be far easier for people to get into the housing market and 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 it's becoming harder and harder and harder but it's 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 not it's not completely um it's not completely inexplainable to to understand why it's happening because people are being incentivized at a significantly higher rate to buy their you know multiple multiple property um, versus being able to try and get into the housing market, and what that's doing is it's meaning that you know, sure, you, you know, you, you've probably um, earning an okay living in real estate, but it's not enough to be able to buy a place where you want to live, in Elwood, um, and and therefore you're leading into investment properties in Bendigo. Um, you know that might not be your that might not be the exact scenario, but um, but that's you know that's a reality for a lot of people, and, and I think it's fantastic that you have got. An investment property because it does create assets and you're paying it off and, and you know that will be that will be a really good asset for you over your lifetime but for a lot of people you know that that's that's not even possible if you're i mean you know if you're in real estate then that's a, that's a pretty good steady income obviously the pandemic's made it difficult but if you're in insecure work casualized work if your wages aren't good enough to be able to even get into the you know go to the bank and say well i'm over the next 30 years i'm going to pay this off um it's locking a lot of people out. So I think we need to be honest about it. We need to be honest about what the economics is happening and and be honest about trying to fix it.
0: Now, I want to ask you first about the changes to JobSeeker, then about the end of JobKeeper as well. This month, we learned that unemployed Australians will receive an extra $25 a week after changes to the JobSeeker base rate passed Parliament. The maximum payment right now is about $566 a fortnight, so that'll increase to $620 a fortnight, not including anything like rent assistance um, and extras like that, and then job seekers will also have to look for at least fifteen jobs a month, up from eight, and have face-to-face appointments as well. A twenty-five dollar a week increase—is that enough?
1: No, of course it's not. What?
0: What? What should it be?
1: So, so what I previously said was that the that the pandemic level supports um, during the pandemic should remain for the entire pandemic. Um, I, I think that what we're seeing is a is a market and an economy that is obviously deeply affected by this pandemic. It, it, from you know, it's it's Monday afternoon at the moment, and we're recording this podcast, and Brisbane has just gone back into lockdown. So clearly, clearly, this pandemic is not over. Clearly, that you know that will dramatically affect businesses. It dramatically affects the the job market. It, it, it affects it affects uh, you know a whole range of factors that people on this on this job seeker rate uh, are living with. So. My view is is that that the increased rate during the pandemic needs to remain. Now that that what that is at the current at the latest iteration was at least one hundred and fifty dollars a fortnight higher than than the updated um, amount. So there was a fifty dollar um, fifty dollar a fortnight increase. Well, I think it was it was um, at, at the la- latest iteration there was a you know two hundred and fifty dollars one hundred and fifty dollars supplement um, of the coronavirus supplement. That was the seventy five. Dollar a week increase that uh, the Greens were calling for at the last election, you know that that's that's probably um, you know I, I, I was comfortable with it being higher at the two hundred and fifty dollar a week uh, so fortnight supplement that was just prior to that one, um, but but you know that, that that is a significant increase. You know it still puts people right on that precipice of living in poverty, but um, but it, 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 it you know it's significant. My view was is that 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 at least needs to be around until at least. The end of the pandemic, um, because it, 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 we are still in exceptional economic circumstances, and so I, I would have liked that to have remained. Um, and beyond that, you, you sort of look at the state of the economy and what what can be justified and maintained. But ultimately, the principles that would guide that decision at that point, which I think is you know is, is being brought on too quickly, would be what is the poverty line, what is the cost of living, what is the cost of people not living in poverty in Australia. And, uh, and at, at this stage, we have, um, we have a reality that the federal government has chosen an amount that they weren't willing to negotiate on. They weren't willing to, um, to, to, to amend or discuss that it was that or the highway. And so we were forced to obviously not stand in the way of that nominal increase. But, but is it enough? No. And should we relook at this? Yes. If this pandemic ha- has taught us anything, Leslie. it's that through no fault of your own, you can find yourself out of work. You know, through no fault of your own, you can find yourself without the steady employment. I I had people come into my office or or on Zoom um, during the height of the pandemic and they they were telling me the story about how they had run businesses for 20, 30 years, good businesses. They employed 10, 15 people. They made very good livings. They, um, they, you know, they paid their taxes. They were good employees. They were good Australians who ran really good businesses and it was all being taken away in an instant um you know people who worked in travel in um in the event sector in sporting fields no i'm not talking about the big plays i'm talking about all the subsidiary businesses that have found their little uh their little um adding and their little way in which they can you know make a bit of money and yeah people found themselves unemployed and 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 without anything else other than government support and you know, I think it was a really good thing that the government did recognise that, that. That you know, sure it's not my political party, but I was I was relieved when I saw the treasurer and the prime minister announce the job keeper and job seeker uh, rates that they did. I was I was grateful, to be honest, because I knew how important it was. You know, in America right now, you know, one of the ways in which you know you try and explain the absolute disaster that was the American pandemic management under Donald Trump if you are sick you know you need to stay home you can't go to work right you can't you can't go into the office you can't be around other people but if you've got no job keeper right or you've got no safety net that that you can feed your family on you're a casual employee so if you don't work you don't get the hours you know how how on earth are you meant to survive and people who said no i've got to go to work i've got to go do what i've got to do and I think the job keeper was one of the most important health measures of this pandemic. It wasn't just about keeping people in jobs; it was also about ensuring that people weren't going to lose jobs if they couldn't make it to their usual work. And I think that was really important in people being able to follow the health guidelines. So, the job seeker amount no different. Governments can make decisions; they can help people; they can do it quickly. Uh, but it's really about political will, and um, and I think that this pandemic is showing that people can lose their jobs quickly, but it's up to governments to be able to support people during their time of need.
0: So now that JobKeeper is over, it was supporting nearly a million workers, the $1,000 a fortnight payment full-time and $650 part-time. And Treasury estimates between 100,000 and 150,000 people will lose their jobs now that it's ended. Um, So was this the right call to end it? Should, Should there have been maybe tailored support in different sectors or, or what what do you think?
1: I'll give you one example. Right. So travel agents, right? Travel agents are um, they they employ tens of thousands of people across Australia. A lot of them are women. A lot of them are women who have working, you know, and, and juggling parenting. Um, they, they you can you can do a lot of the work from home. You can do a lot of it after hours because of the time differences. It's a really good job for a lot of people and you can get some commission and you can make a, you know you can make a little living. The majority of business that most travel agents in Australia make their money from is international travel. The international borders is not is not the, uh, is not the um, decisions. So the state governments don't have decision-making power around the international borders. It's purely a federal government, a federal government decision. So the federal government has made a decision to restrict the sort of business that these businesses can do, and yet they're stopping the support for these businesses, if you're asking businesses to change the way in which they operate, I think you've got to support them as a principle. If you're asking people to change the way they do business, I think you've got to support them throughout the pandemic. And you know, events companies aren't operating at full capacity. People are social distancing. People are doing the right thing. People are running reduced capacity. They're running at a risk because, like what we're seeing in Brisbane, you can have stuff cancelled like that, um, and it's and it's and it's a real risk for a lot of businesses. But JobKeeper was about providing that buffer and about making sure that on the other side of this pandemic, once we get through some of these vac- vaccinations, there is a little bit more security for those businesses. And you know, this this vaccine rollout has gone really slowly, but the ending of JobKeeper has happened really suddenly. And I think that I think that it's too early to, to stop supporting businesses, and it's too early, especially in some which are directly affected by the decisions that are made by the federal government. Um, for the federal government to be ending that support. And we are going to see job losses. In McNamara, we have 20,000 people on JobKeeper at the moment and it's going to be a hard-hit area. That's almost, you know, one in five, one in six workers locally are on JobKeeper. It's going to be really rough and uh, I'm really worried about it.
0: Really, for the first time since the start of the pandemic, COVID-19 has sort of taken a back seat, really, given everything else that's been going on in federal yeah. politics. Um, it's been just astonishing. I don't even know how to what, what even to say about it. We've seen um, historic rape allegations against Attorney General Christian Porter. We had the National March for Justice women's rally and, and the comments that came afterwards by Scott Morrison. Um, we had a, a coalition staffer being sacked for masturbating on a female MP's desk, reports of... Staff orgies in Parliament House, the alleged rape of Brittany Higgins by a colleague um, in in Senator Reynolds' ministerial office in 2019, and then the comments that followed from Linda Reynolds and the apology from Linda Reynolds, um, allegations of sexual harassment against women levelled at Liberal MP Andrew Lamming. And just this morning, the Victorian National MP Ann Webster has lodged a complaint against a man who allegedly harassed her in Parliament House last week, among a string of other accusations of abuse and harassment um, and misogyny and comments and sexism. Uh, so how much more evidence of the toxic workplace culture in Parliament House do we actually need to see before something really changes? And can can the government recover from this now? Like, what what happens now? Is it even is it even possible?
1: There's got to be consequences, right? There's got to be consequences that the, the people who have have whether it's Linda Reynolds calling Brittany Higgins a lying cow, or whether it's uh, taking the allegations of rape seriously, whether it's the absolutely gross behaviour by Queensland LNP member, Andrew Lemming, whether it's the really awful defiling of a member of Parliament's desk, um, you know, there's got to be consequences. And At the moment, the only person who's lost their job has been a staff member, one staff member. That's it, right? That's literally it. Andrew Lemming is still a member of the Queensland Liberal National Party. He will still attend party meetings. He is still a member of Scott Morrison's team. Christian Porter is still a member of Scott Morrison's cabinet. Linda Reynolds is still a member of Scott Morrison's cabinet. there is there is you know who knows who did that thing to Anne Webster but at this stage there's been no consequence. There, there is literally no consequence for anyone of Scott Morrison's mates. none and it, and it's ridiculous it's it's, it's it, you know it's so ridiculous. So I think, I think there needs to be consequences as a first start and, and Australians need to see that there are consequences for this behaviour. You can't just get reshuffled to another job if you mishandle these sorts of things. You can't just have a different portfolio. You've got to, you've got to actually um, have a consequence for the way in which you behave throughout this whole awful saga. So I'd like to see a consequence. I'm yet to see any leadership from the Prime Minister on this. I think he has failed every leadership test throughout this whole saga, and I, I, you know, I am I am just, you know, if, if this is the incident where people see the true nature and the true character of Scott Morrison, well, then so be it. But I, I, I think he has. You know, he led well throughout the pandemic for the most part until he started sniping at Daniel Andrews. But, he, he for, you know, to his credit, he, he led well. He, he took responsibility. He gave support to people. He made sure people were safe, and he did what had to be done. And what's he doing now? He's literally going back to the old ways of instead of taking responsibility for the things that have gone wrong in his government, he is just shuffling them around and not taking anything seriously and not listening and not hearing what people are saying. So it's appalling. Things need to change. Government needs to act. And there needs to be consequences because what has happened to people is is unacceptable and, and it shouldn't happen in Australian politics, let alone in Parliament House where it is meant to be the place where we make decisions on behalf of the people that we represent in a way that hopefully makes their lives a little bit better. One of the big things I think that has made a difference in in the Labor Party has been quotas. It has been something that, you know, I was only able to be pre-selected because we we have a minimum number of women already Um, pre-selected. I operate with fierce, tough, strong leaders like Tanya Plibersek, like Penny Wong, like Christina Keneally, like others, Amanda Rishworth and others, you know, we have a great group of young female leaders also coming through the ranks. Um, you know, we, we 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 have some amazingly qualified and talented people and, and that happens because you go out and look for them and ensure that they get good seats in Parliament. So I think that I think the Labor Party is in a strong position because we do have these strong leaders who don't put up with the sort of crap that Scott Morrison's dishing out right now. You know, to, to, to be in the same room as some of these women, you know you are in the you are, you are in the presence of strong and thoughtful and tough people who are there to lead and who are there to make things better. And I, I really hope that many of them get to serve in a, in a future government because I think they will do great things for Australia and I would like to serve alongside of them. Um, and... Yeah, I, I, I have a lot of admiration and respect for a lot of the strong women that we have in our focus.
0: A couple of days ago you tweeted, you said, only Scott Morrison's idea of leadership would mean Porter stays in cabinet, Reynolds stays in cabinet, Lamming stays in party room, Stuart Robert to be promoted, the guy is on another planet. I think that pretty much sums up the Prime Minister's response to the events of the past couple of months. Uh, do you think Scott Morrison's leadership is in question? What really can happen now, do you think? What do you predict is going to happen or what, what could happen?
1: I still think that there's a bit of time between the now and the next election. I mean, it could be another year away. So the the, the panic won't have set in yet, especially in the coalition party room. Now, I, I, I don't... I still think that you'd rather be in government than opposition, leading into an election. I think that there's more you can do from government. It's a better position. It's a position of strength, and people all they need to do is do the same thing as they did last time, in terms of voting. So, so I think Scott Morrison is still in. You know, it's his election to lose. Um, but and he won. You know, he won the last election. But I, I, I do think that that one thing has become clear over this whole time is that people are starting starting to question his judgment and they're starting to question his ability to manage through you know what should be pretty straightforward political issues and he should he should um he should be able to find a way through it and i think people are frustrated with the fact that he he hasn't been able to so look you know it's it's the ball sort of in his court he is the prime minister he does have you know he has a privileged position of strength that he can operate from but but if he keeps going the way he has over the last month, um, I think that the pressure will continue to increase, and I, I don't think his leadership is in doubt yet. Um, but but you know, let's see what it's like three months out before an election, and whether they are you know whether whether people have real well and truly made up their minds about about Morrison or, or whether or not uh, or whether or not there is another option. But I think I think he's more than likely the one who's going to lead into the next election. But I also think he's and I think he's a very good campaigner. I also think he's eminently beatable and that the Labor Party can if we are disciplined and we talk about things that actually matter to people, like their wages, like their family, like their healthcare, like their education, like their opportunities, like their affordability of housing, like the fact that men and women are paid differently in this country, you know, like the fact that women are retiring with less superannuation, like the fact that women are leaving the workforce doing more caring and more family responsibilities and it's costing them in retirement and it's costing them in career progression, if we, if we come with a plan to be able to address some of these issues, real issues that are, are – are, and not even to mention climate change uh, and our, our ability to reduce emissions, I think if we, if we come with a clear plan to actually tackle some of the serious issues in our country, then, then we have a real opportunity to be a point of difference and a, and a real opportunity to win the next election. And that's, that's what we're going to be focused on. It's what I'm focused on. It's what I did with the housing piece is to really focus on the policy. I'm not here to talk about myself. I'm not here to talk about my colleagues even. I'm I'm here to talk about what what do we need to do as the Australian Labor Party to form a government that will help Australians. That's our focus. It has to be our resolute focus. And that's
0: what will lead us in good stead. Well, Josh Burns, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for taking the time to chat with me. I really appreciate it.
1: It's absolutely my pleasure. Take care and I'm sure we'll catch up soon.